Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting episode of Kodo's Cinema, the podcast show where I talk about movies. I'm your host, the man, the myth, the legend, Mark Kodo. Last week I was talking about the history of Back to the Future, which is the behind the scenes stories of all three movies. This week, I am continuing with the Back to the Future month with my review of the first Back to the Future film. Back to the Future is widely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. It brings in the future to the film's title because no other film based on time traveling has the word future in the title. Many critics and audiences were amazed by the film through the visual effects, soundtrack, performances, and story about going back in time. Having to be nominated for four Academy Awards, winning one for Best Sound Editing, becoming the only Back to the Future film to win that award. Not only Back to the Future became a great film, it did have its fair share of production hell moments. So, let me re- recap last week's episode. In 1980, Back to the Future started out as an idea because Bob Gale wondered what it would be like to become friends with his father at the same school he graduated at. Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale wrote the first draft of the script and presented the script to Columbia Pictures in September 1981. Columbia liked the script, but it wanted it to be raunchier. The two later went to Disney, but Disney did not like the idea of the film's plot where Marty's mother dates her son, and her son turns out to be uh, Marty McFly. Zemeckis and Gale were tempted to work with Steven Spielberg due to their previous work experiences that turned out to be box office bombs, such as used cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Although both were critical hits, FYI, Spielberg loved the script to Back to the Future. Robert Zemeckis moved on to Romancing the Stone in 1984, which became a critical and box office hit that made him a name, which got him the courage to direct Back to the Future. Bob Gale and Steven Spielberg were on board to work on the film at Universal Studios and Amblin Entertainment with Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy. However, Universal made a trade with Columbia Pictures to retrieve the script for Back to the Future. So, Universal finally got the script. Now it is time for the casting call, folks. Christopher Lloyd was cast as Dr. Emmett Brown, Crispin Glover as George McFly, Leah Thompson as Lorraine McFly, Thomas F. Wilson as Biff Tannen, and James Tolkien as Principal Strickland. Somehow, the lead role for Marty McFly was difficult because Michael J. Fox was originally the top pick, but his commitment to the, to the TV show Family Ties made a roadblock in his schedule. So, Eric Stoltz was the runner-up for Marty McFly. A few weeks into production, Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg saw good acting in Stoltz, but the comedy chops were not what they were looking for. Thankfully, Michael J. Fox's schedule was opened, and the Back to the Future crew made a deal with Family Ties producer for Michael to to work Family Ties by day and Back to the Future by night. And the rest was history. And BAM! A classic was born. Whew, geez, that took a while. Anyway, let us sit back and relax as I take you guys back in time to 35 years ago to one of the greatest movies and time-traveling movies of all time. This is Back to the Future. The film starts off in a science lab with the camera panning towards the clocks on the walls while the credits roll on. To be fair, the opening with the clocks foreshadows the the film's title and plot about going back in time. 
whether it's the past, present, or future. The opening alone fits the film plot and title perfectly. As the camera pans on, we get to see amazing Rube Goldberg experiences on, you guess it, breakfast. Hey, who doesn't love Rube Goldberg experiments for breakfast? Then we also got a news story about plutonium being stole, stolen, and we get to, get to see our main character walking on the doorstep. Speaking of main character, an 18-year-old boy named Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, who is looking for Dr. Emmett L. Brown, played by Christopher Lloyd. While looking around the place, Marty decides to raise the audio or the amplifier on the sound speakers so he could play on a small guitar to make rock and roll. The sound waves were so loud, it catapults Marty to the other side of the room. The phone rings. It was the doc. Marty answers the phone and wonders where the doc was. Marty doesn't realize that the doc went back in time, but he wants Marty to come to Twin Pines Mall at night and pick up equipment. Suddenly, Marty realizes that he is late for school because the clock's on the wall says 8 a.m., but the, but the doc's time was 25 mi minutes slow. It is 8.25 a.m., Marty runs out the door with his skateboard with the Power of Love, with the Power of Love theme song playing in the background by Huey Lewis and the News. What is nice about this scene is seeing the entire town of Hill Valley while Marty is skateboarding to school late. Marty, Marty gets to school only to be saved by Jennifer Parker, played by Claudia Wells, who warns him if if Strickland catches him, it is four tardies in a row. Okay, folks, I am pretty sure you know what that means. Marty and Jennifer walk into the halls to class, only to be captured by the slack-hating Principal Strickland, played by James Tolkien. And Principal Strickland really, really hates slackers. Strickland gives Marty and Jennifer a tardy slip, and you know the rest when it comes to tardy slips. On top of this, Principal Strickland tells Marty that his father, George McFly, was a slacker too. Later that day, Marty and his rock band, The Pinheads, audition for Battle of the Bands, only for the band to fail because they were being too darn loud. By the way, one of the judges is Huey Lewis. It was a, di it was a different time back then because rock and roll was starting up. Marty talks with Jennifer about his fear in turning into his parents despite his ambition for the future. While we never get to see much of Jennifer throughout the rest of the film until the end, it is nice to see Marty and Jennifer bringing in the chemistry for the film's opening. Later that night, Marty comes home to see a tow truck towing a damaged car to the garage. It turns out that his father, George McFly, got into a car crash with the butthead bully himself, Biff Tannen, played by Thomas F. Wilson. B Biff gets into a car crash with George McFly. George McFly and wants him to fill out the paperwork of the crash. We later get to see Marty's mom, Lorraine McFly, played by Leah Thompson, who looks a bit depressed as she sits down with her family, which, which also includes Dave and Linda McFly, played by Mark LeClure and Wendy Jo Sperber, as she tells the story of how, sh of how she met George McFly. Lorraine tells the kids that George accidentally got hit by a car from Lorraine's father, only for her to nurse George back to his health and go to, and then they went to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Aww, that's so sweet. 12 o'clock midnight, Marty gets a phone call from Dr. Emmett L. Brown to come on down to Twin Pies Mall. At 1.16 1 a.m., 
Marty arrives in the parking lot of Twin Pines Mall and meets with the dog, Einstein. And then we get to see the grand baby of all time sheets, the DeLorean and Dr. Emmett L. Brown. Probably one of the greatest moments in any Back to the Future. The review of the time machine and Dr. Brown. Doc, uh, Doc and Marty test out the time machine with the dog. The two are about to see some serious stuff. Well, you know what I mean, folks. The time machine, the time machine works by going 88 miles per hour with the fuel source they need, platoon. I mean, plutonium. Doc Brown shows Marty how to put the time circuits in the time machine and tells Marty that the flux capacitor is what makes time matter. Little does Marty know, the plutonium that Doc Brown took was stolen from a terrorist group to which that group was going to build a bomb out of that. A few minutes later, the terrorist group showed up and shot down the dock and Marty went into the time machine to drive away, only for Marty to travel back in time. Where did Marty go exactly? November 5th. 1955. Why? Because Dr. Emmett Brown accidentally put that time circuit in because he remembered a time of how he created time traveling. Marty is in 1955 and he crashes into a barn which is owned by Old Man Peabody. This draws the attention to, to the family though because the, they thought the time she is a UFO. Fun fact, the kid who is holding a comic book in his hand is called Space Zombies from Pluto because the film's title was almost changed to Spaceman from Pluto. The family was scared to see Marty in a hazard suit, thinking that he was an alien zombie. Only for old man Peabody to come out with a shotgun. Whoa. Marty escapes, escapes in the time machine, accidentally drives through a small pine tree, and Peabody shooting his mailbox instead of the time machine. Oh, God, that was crazy. While driving, Marty thinks that this is all a dream. This is not the case because Marty goes to town only to discover that he is in 1955. Marty walks into a nearby diner to make a phone call and find a younger version. Oh, and excuse me, only to find a younger version of Dr. Emmett L. Brown. Unable to get a recession from the phone, Marty takes the address of Doc Brown and tries to ask the waiter for directions. The waiter asked Marty if he was going to order something, to which Marty got a coffee drink on tap. And guess who Marty is sitting next to? That is right, George McFly, played by Crispin Glover. Out of nowhere, the butthead bully Biff Tannen shows up along with his cohorts, 3D, played by Casey Says Masco, Match, Billy Zane, and Skinhead, played by Jeff, excuse me, J.J. Cohen. And no. I am not making these names up, by the way. These are actual names of Biff Tannen's buddies, even though their names were never mentioned. Biff only came into the diner only to ask George if he finished his homework, which he didn't. Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Huh? Think, McFly. Think. But he, but he, and I mean, when I meant he, I'm talking about George McFly. He'll get it done tonight. And then Biff insults Marty by calling him. You guessed it. Butthead. Well, what are you looking at, butthead? Biff and the gang leave the diner, and Marty begins to recognize his father. Goldie Wilson, played by Donald Foleylove, comes over to tell George to stand up to Biff and, and, then, and then brings up uh, what he wants to become. Marty replies by saying that Goldie is going to run for mayor. 
and Goldie liked the idea. 30 years later, Goldie Wilson did became mayor of Hill Valley. So that is a very good foreshadowing right there. George leaves the diner and Marty follows him. Marty finds George up a tree with binoculars watching something. Okay. Okay, folks, I can tell you one thing and one thing only. He is not watching birds. That is my only response. That is my only response, folks. I'm pretty sure you guys know the rest. George slips off a branch only to land in the street where a car comes by and Marty pushes George out of the way. The car knocks Marty out to the ground and, uh, and the person in the car is actually Lorraine's father. Mar Marty wakes up to the Baines house. However, he is only greeted by Lorraine Baines, Marty's mom, in her bedroom. Marty is shocked to see her mom as an 18-year-old teenage girl, realizing how... Okay, you know, maybe, maybe I'm going a little too far ahead of this, but I'm pretty sure you guys know what I'm, what I'm talking about. It appears that uh, Lorraine has more of a love interest for Marty compared to George McFly. Wow. Wow. I mean, wow, wow. And Dizzy told Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale that a mother falling in love with her son in a movie like Back to the Future was not family-friendly. Okay, that is true. But, but hey, maybe years later, somebody, somebody, somebody at Dizzy decided to go for far more mature, mature films in a mature route by doing PG-13 movies. So... How's that for family-friendly content? Okay, moving forward. Marty and Lorraine went downstairs for dinner, who is seeing her family for the very first time. Thankfully, Marty asks Lorraine's parents about the address and the location to Emmett L. Brown, to which they gave Marty good directions to go to. Marty tracks down the house of Emmett, Emmett L. Brown. Doc doesn't believe in Marty's futuristic vision because he thought that the future boy was crazy and yes marty is definitely future boy marty is not crazy because he brings up the story of how doc from 1985 told marty that he invented time traveling by accidentally hitting his head on the toilet and and that did happen in 1955 the 1985 dr emmett l brown told him that story that is where doc got the idea for the flux capacitor that makes time traveling possible. Doc seems to believe Marty as they decide to go check out the DeLorean and turns on the machine. Doc has finally invented something that works. 1.21 gigawatts of lightning are needed for the time machine because Marty needs to go back to the future. A bowl of lightning is, a, is the main source. Marty shows Doc the flyer poster of saving the clock tower after a lightning bolt struck the tower at 10.04 p.m. back in 1955. So Marty decides to spend a week in 1980, no, 1955, I mean. Doc asks Marty if he interacted with anyone. Marty told Doc that he ran into his parents, and it seems that Marty altered time because Marty saved his father's life. And Marty's mom begins to fall in love with her soon-to-be son. This means Marty would soon be erased from existence. The next morning, Marty McFly and Dr. Emmett L. Brown went to Hill Valley High School to search for Marty's parents. Inside, Marty finds his father being harassed by school bullies and Principal Strickland, who calls George a slacker. Or maybe the sign on George, George's back says, uh, kick me is one of the reasons why. 
geez, even Marty's, geez, even Marty's response about Strickland's hair hit the spot. Marty brings George to meet Lorraine. Lorraine sees both George and Marty, but she still has the good feelings for Marty. Or Calvin Klein, as, uh, as uh, she calls him. Doc Brown notices it. Oh, this is heavy. Marty sits with George at lunch and tries to convince George to go to the Under the Sea dance with Lorraine. But somehow, George is not ready, but he thinks uh, Biff should go to the enchantment Under the Sea dance with Lorraine. It turns out that Biff is harassing Lorraine, and then Marty comes over to get his meat hooks off of Lorraine. A fight almost started between Biff and Marty, but Strickland intervenes, and Biff tells Marty to make like a tree and get out of here. It seems like Marty's about to get an, get an earful from Strickland, only for a perfectly timed paper airplane to fly past Strickland. Marty runs from the cafeteria to catch up with George, but George seems to be annoyed because Marty is desperate while George is not. Don't worry, folks. Marty comes, comes in as Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan to help George change his mind. George meets Marty at a nearby gas station the ne next morning, telling him that Darth Vader came from the planet Vulcan, who is going to wipe out his brain if he doesn't take Lorraine out to the dance. Marty takes George over to the, to the diner where a lot of Hill Valley High School students are hanging out eating lunch. George sees Lorraine, drinks a chocolate milk, walks to her and says that George is her destiny. Until then, hey McFly! It's Biff Tannen, folks. It looks like Biff Tannen's about to go for George until Marty trips Biff over. Now, Biff wants a piece of Marty. And then Marty pulls off one of the oldest tricks in the book. Pointing and asking Biff, Hey, what's that? And then Marty punches Biff in the face. Ooh, fun fact. If you pause at the frame where Marty punches Biff, you can see a shot of Eric Stoltz punching Biff in the face. No, really. The frame where Marty punches Biff is Eric Stoltz. You may think that all the footage of Eric Stoltz was cut out of the film, but that one single shot of Marty punching Biff in the face is Eric Stoltz. Marty runs out of the diner to get away from Biff Tannen and the Tannen gang. The gang are running after Marty as he is riding on what looks to be a skateboard that used to be a scooter. Biff and the gang hopped in Biff's car as the pursuit goes on throughout the heart of Hill Valley. It appears Marty is about to be pinned by Biff's car. Marty notices, notices a truck and leaps for his life as Biff and the gang crash into a truck full of Manure. Back in Doc's garage, Marty and Doc are testing out a scale model of the DeLorean for tonight's May event of where Marty is being sent back to 1985. Along the way, Lorraine surprisingly followed Marty to Doc's garage as she asks Marty out to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, to which Marty accepts the offer. After accepting the offer, or invite I should say, Marty goes over to George's house to discuss a plan for him. The plan is that George becomes the hero and saves Lorraine from Marty from making out with Lorraine so that George can go to the dan dance with Lorraine. Later that night, Marty and Doc are setting up the DeLorean for the evening lightning strike at the Hill Valley Clock Tower. Before going to the dance, Marty wants to tell Doc about the future, which is 1985. Doc does not want to hear about it because Doc doesn't want to know about his future. 
life in the year 1985. So Marty writes a letter to Doc Brown with a warning that says, do not open until 1985. The dance has started with the band playing music in the background as George McFly is dancing around and waiting for Marty and Lorraine to arrive. Marty and Lorraine arrive to Hill Valley High School waiting for George to come out. While waiting, Lorraine decides to drink and smoke to Marty's surprise. Well, it is the 1950s, folks. Time was different back then compared to today's world. And then, Lorraine tries to kiss Marty. Oh boy. Somehow, Lorraine thinks that it is not right, and Marty agrees with it. I think it's the fact that Lorraine almost made out with her son in the film due to, due to alternating the time. Or something like that. Eventually, and oh my god, Biff Tannen and the gang are back. To which they show up drunk. To take 300 bucks out of Marty. Because Marty damaged his car. Hey, Biff, you were the one who damaged the car because you weren't watching where you were going. Biff Tannen tries to make out with with Marty's mother, while Biff's gang throws Marty in the back of one of the band members' car. Surprisingly, the ba one of the band members notice notices it and and the gang and decides to chase, chase the Biff Tannen trio down. The band members notice that Marty is locked in the back trunk, but the keys are inside the trunk. Who leaves car keys in the back trunk? The band members were able to help Marty get out of the trunk with a screwdriver, but one of the members accidentally sliced his hand with it. Marty gives the keys, keys back and runs back to Lorraine. George arrives to Lorraine's car to tell Marty get his hands off of her. But George doesn't know that Biff Tannen is in the car with Lorraine. And if you thought George got the wrong car, he did not because George came at the right time to stop Biff. Biff grabs George's arm and Lorraine tries to stop Biff from hurting George. But Biff pushes Lorraine. George saw what happens, so what does George do? Hmm, that's a good question. What does he do? Either A, not fight back, B, call Marty for help, or C, punch Biff in the face. If your answer was C, then BAM! Knockout for Biff Tannen. George stood, stood up for himself and brings Lorraine inside for, for the school dance. Mission accomplished. George and Lorraine are now a couple. Aww, that is so sweet. Wait a minute, Marty knows that the band needs to go on stage to keep the show going. But one of the band members, Marvin Berry, played by Harry Walters Jr., was, was, the, was the person who accidentally sliced his hand a few minutes ago from helping Marty get out of the trunk. And from that, he was the one who was also playing guitar. And with a sliced hand, he can't play guitar. Don't worry, folks. Marty is here to save the day because he is a guitar player, too. Okay, uh, I'm going to go off topic a little bit about the whole uh, injury thing in that film. Okay, bear with me, folks. Injuring yourself before or during a music performance sucks. Because I know a lot of musicians who have rehearsed and practiced for hours and hours when performing at a concert or a dance. Some musicians and singers can't play because they are either sick which is one thing, but musicians and singers being injured is a whole not other story. While we can argue that some injuries in some injuries in in a music life are not all bad, but it may have a damaging reputation depending on how bad the injury is. 
especially if a performance is delayed. In the music world, injuries and illnesses do occur, and with injuries and illnesses really suck. From the scene where Marvin's hand is sliced and mentions that he plays guitar is understandable, because how can you play a guitar with a sliced hand? I mean, how can you do that? But thankfully, on the bright side, Marvin sings, so that is definitely a good sign. But hey, what do I know? There are some musicians who have the guts to keep the show going with an injury. I mean, the show must go on. As I mentioned, Marty plays guitar, so there is a backup. Sometimes you need a plan B. Okay, going back on topic. Marty goes on stage with the guitar in his hands to bring in the love. George and Lorraine are dancing until another one of Biff's buddies tries to steal Lorraine from George. Marty noticed that he can't play guitar play guitar because he is about to be erased from existence. Thankfully, George was able to back the bully off and kisses Lorraine, bringing Marty back to play guitar. Marty plays another song, which is Johnny Be Good. The song gives an upbeat to all the students at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. While Marty is playing, some of the students at the dance notices George and Lorraine, and one of them asks if George has any thoughts on becoming school president. And there you have it, folks. The inspiration, folks. Bob Gale's father was the president during his senior year at, at, his high, at the high school that he went to. And that is a very well thought out reference to the writer's father. And I actually like how they brought that up because I didn't even notice that at the time until, until learning that Bob Gale's father was a school president. And that is a very good reference. After the performance, Marty says goodbye to George and Lorraine for an amazing night. Marty leaves the school to meet up with the Doc at the clock tower as the storm arrives. Marty and Doc also share a goodbye before traveling back to the future, only for Doc to find an envelope that Marty wrote. Doc tears the letter apart because he doesn't want to know about his own destiny in the future, until a tree branch knocks over one of the cords from the clock tower. Great Scott! That cord needs to be plugged in so the Viking can strike the clock and travel through for the DeLorean. Doc goes up to the clock tower to plug the electric cords in. Marty tries to tell Doc about the future from the bottom of the clock. But Doc doesn't hear him because the storm and the clock it is striking 10 p.m. To the film's credit, Marty and Dr. Emmett Brown are the main highlights of this film. They performed their parts very well and brought in the chemistry between very well between the two, especially in the time traveling situations, pretty much uh, similar to Rick and Morty, which is a spoof of Marty and Doc from Back to the Future. Marty gets into the DeLorean and begins to drive 88 miles per hour. Thankfully, Doc was able to plug the cords in with the lightning strike that struck the DeLorean, sending Marty back to 1985. Doc is so surprised, he runs over to the fire, fire tire tracks and dances around screaming of how successful his plan went to send Marty back to the future. In 1985, Marty is back. Marty decides to run to Twin Pines Mall, which is now re renamed to Lone Pine Mall, to save Doc from being shot by terrorists. Well, it did happen again, but the terrorists crashed into one of the small buildings after Marty from the beginning went to 1985. Marty grieves Doc, but... Doc is alive because he is wearing a bulletproof vest and taping the letter together from 1955.
well, sometimes, sometimes minds do change if you want to learn your own destiny. Doc arrives, Marty, back home, and he departs to the future. Marty wakes up at his house to find his father being a successful author and his mother being happy. By the way, Biff Tannen works for the McFlies now as an auto valet detailer. Marty gets a surprise gift in the garage, which is a car, along with Jennifer Parker showing up from behind. As Marty and Jennifer are about to share a kiss, Doc comes, over, comes, comes from the future to bring Marty and Jennifer back to the future. The reason why? Well, something must be done about their kids. The trio are in the DeLorean as they are about to take off. For the most, for the most part, where we go, we don't need roads. And then they, and then they travel back to the future. And there you have it, folks. That is my review of Back to the Future. What do you guys think? Did I miss anything? As I mentioned, Back to the Future is still one of the greatest movies of all time. And for, for 35 years, it still holds up. The story, the characters, the music by Alan Silvestri, and everything else in this movie that amazed the critics and audiences. While the ending itself is sequel baiting, it, it leaves everyone wanting more, which is why there is a second Back to the Future film. And speaking of second film, next week I will be reviewing Back to the Future Part 2. Thank you for tuning in to Kodo Cinema. I'm your host, the man, the myth, the legend, Mark Kodo. Remember to watch movies and stay positive. To be continued.